0: This is the Scott Bradley Show Podcast.
1: Well, Let me get right on to this because this topic I find that we're going to start with today, I find completely, completely fascinating. Partially, I'm not going to deny it, partially because I'm a baseball fan, but just the anytime human beings can do extraordinary things that are almost inexplicable, I find it fascinating. I use an example. It's not quite the same. But the other day I was watching, there was a gr- there was a great documentary on Netflix called In the Shadow of the Moon. I think I mentioned it before. It's about the moonshot, the, the, the rockets, the Apollo missions that went to the moon. And much of it is based on the men in NASA down in Houston who were solving problems on the fly, day after day, minute by minute. And honestly, when you think about the brain power that is involved and the instant the need to be able to come up with answers to incredibly complex problems on the fly, that's completely out of my league. I mean, it really is. It's completely out of my league. So we move on to this. You may have read the story in the spec today. It was a a Washington Post story the spectator picked up, basically talking about what happens in a baseball player's brain when he's trying to hit a 95-mile-an-hour fastball. Now, here is an explanation that another website that was trying to crystallize what the answer given said. Now, try to follow along. This is a quote. What they've identified so far, according to a Washington Post report, is that the brain's fusiform gyrus, which helps with object recognition, is especially active during hitting and connects to the motor cortex to dictate the physical reaction. Also, of note, is the brain minimizes the use of the frontal cortex. Uh, I'll stop because I have no idea what that means. But I know someone who does know what it means. He's one of the authors of this study, one of the guys who was quoted in that story, Jason Sherwood, a neuroscientist who has a business called DeServo, which is studying this kind of stuff. He joins us now. Jason, thanks for doing this.
2: No problem. Thanks for having me.
1: Let's go back to the very beginning and the point that we started with. By physical, by human reaction time and everything else, hitting a fastball that is getting up to 95 or 100 miles an hour probably should be close to physically impossible, right?
2: Yeah. Well, um, I mean, it takes about, a, just if you flashed a, a light at the visual system, it takes about 150 milliseconds for that flash of light to be registered in the brain. And so in that amount of time, the ball has gone about a third of the way already. So, you know, you're, you're really slicing milliseconds, tens of milliseconds, when it comes to how fast. Uh, these baseball players, uh, professional, collegiate, and even high school sometimes, have to make decisions.
1: So for you and I, if we were if we were playing in a major league game right now and, uh, I don't know, pick whoever's the hardest thrower in the majors right now, or oldest Chapman winds up and throws it, there is no chance that you, maybe, maybe you, I don't know, but there's no chance that I'm getting my bat around. I'm not even recognizing that the ball is coming, right? Because that's not something I've trained myself to do.
2: Well... Yeah, I mean, you, you probably can see that he's he's about to throw the pitch. But, I mean, when uh, when when the ball starts coming, you know, it's, if you're talking about Chapman, you know, that's around 95, 100 miles an hour. So you've got around 425 milliseconds from when the ball is released until when it gets to the plate. And, you know, if it's if it's you or me, uh, we've got less of a chance than, you know, let's say Bryce Harper or someone else playing in the major leagues. Because their brain's have specialized towards picking up what are the relevant cues earlier on that can tell them where this ball is going. And then they can connect that to a motor decision, meaning like to swing or not to swing. So like when you were quoting from the article, talking about the fusiform gyrus, uh, the frontal cortex, the motor control areas, things like that, everything that's going on in a, a a real big league player's brain involves those areas where... Their fusiform gyrus is picking up on the relevant things about the pitch before yours or mine is, and then they connect that information to the parts of the brain that says swing or don't swing, and they do that a lot more efficiently than you or I, and so that's why if if we're compared to them doing it, they're going to do a lot better than us in general.
1: Okay, so let's try, I I don't know if we can take a couple minutes here and try to do it in human terms, not in expert terms because most of us, you know, have not really done our PhD in anatomy or, or physiology. So walk me through. Me
2: neither. Mine was an
3: aerospace engineering.
2: Well, so, you know,
1: <laughs> so, so you really are a rocket scientist. So that makes us even yeah. feel worse. Um, okay. So walk us through, if you can, the physiology yeah. of what actually happens in the brain that takes place from the moment the ball is released and your eyes pick up the ball. What, what happens in your brain that connects the vision that you have when you pick up the ball to your body firing and swinging the bat?
2: Right. So so basically, so once the ball is released, so you're a batter, right, and you're up there looking for, looking for a pitch to hit, right? And so you're looking for a pitch to hit in a certain kind of tunnel, so to speak. And if the ball is in that tunnel, you're going to go for it. If it's out of that tunnel, you're not going to go for it, right? And so you're basically looking to see, like, I want to swing or I don't want to swing. If I'm in the tunnel, the ball's in the tunnel, swing. If it's out of the tunnel, don't swing. And the part of the brain that helps you figure out in the tunnel or out of the tunnel is that thing called the fusiform gyrus. And that thing is really really good at complex visual pattern recognition, meaning, like, I see a picture of somebody's face and I can differentiate it from a picture of somebody else's face. Or, in this case, for baseball players, they've specialized that part of the brain for recognizing whether the ball's in the tunnel or out of the tunnel. Right. So that's the first step physiologically. Then the next thing that has to happen is they have to connect that observation, that perception, with what their bat is supposed to do. Right. And that involves the parts of the brain that move stuff in the body. That's what we call the motor control areas. And so... What's got to then happen is that a signal has to get from the fusiform gyrus, so that's the part that recognizes in the tunnel, out of the tunnel, and it has to connect to the parts of the body that say swing or don't swing, right? And so that's all happening um, between the nerve fibers in the brain and between the electrical and chemical activity that's happening in these two different parts of the brain. And there are a bunch of other areas that are involved, but those are the two main, main areas that are, that are more active in players than they are non-players. And that's what they were talking about in that Washington Post story.
1: And the amazing thing about that is that when we watch baseball players, and, you know, obviously, unlike the old days where they were kind of, you know, a lot of them were sitting in the dugout eating hot dogs and a little out of shape. We we look at these guys now, and they're all in unbelievable shape. And we somehow, I think, convince ourselves that what they're doing is a physical reaction when, in fact, it sounds like it's a lot more of actually a brain and a mental reaction
2: absolutely yeah i mean you know there's the the great line by john Crux that he says i'm not an athlete i'm a ball player <laughs> and you know i mean like there was there was a long there was quite a time where you know other sports the uh, athletes were in much better shape than the baseball players it's only really i think been in the last 10 20 years that you've seen a huge change in the physical fitness of uh, major league players and other professional play, baseball players so you know i mean um, I think that's a good indicator actually that, that for a long time uh it was primarily that cognitive side that uh gave a tremendous advantage for players uh who may not have been as physically fit uh to excel in baseball. So uh now of course you've got the case that, that everybody is in great physical shape and they're on, you know, strict nutrition regimens and sometimes sleep regimens and all these other kind of things in baseball as well as other sports. So the line is is not as clear anymore. But everyone everyone knows in baseball, uh, you know, from Yogi Berra's things about like you can't think and hit to, you know, uh, Phil Jackson's uh, approach to basketball, then basketball and stuff like that. Everyone knows that the mental side of the game is important. It's just a question of being able to measure it. Mm. And no one's really ever been able to measure it precisely in an effective way for scouting and for developing a play.
3: And that's
1: what you guys are doing. And just before I get to that, does the yeah. average person... So, I, I mean, I, I work here, you do your thing, whoever's doing whatever, you're an electrician, you're whatever, when mm-hmm. you are doing your particular job, and most people's jobs does require at times quick decisions, do, yeah. we, do we have the same, do, does everybody have the same or close to the same reaction time in their area of expertise, or is this something that is particularly unique that has allowed these particular baseball players to reach the highest levels of where they are. In other words, is this just yeah, a recognition that. of their expertise area?
2: Yes. Yeah. And it's really good that you picked up on that because, um, you know, actually, when I first started doing this kind of research, it was on musicians. When I was at Columbia University, I was doing this work on musicians. And then I've also done it with soldiers in the U.S. Army. And, you know, now we did it with baseball players. And the baseball player one is really what's developed um, the most. But Really at the foundation here is what we're generally measuring is expertise in your domain, whatever it is, right? So whether it's music, whether it's, you know, Army soldiers, whether it's, uh, you know, baseball players or any of the other examples you're talking about, it's, it's easier for us to, to then measure that expertise when there are quick decisions involved. So like when you talked about the example of the, the, uh, the guys at NASA during, uh, you know, during the Mercury and, you know, Gemini and Apollo missions, Making these kind of quick decisions, you know I bet if we could measure it we'd, we'd we'd definitely see that they were they were coming to correct observations based on the data in front of them a lot faster than somebody who wouldn't have that kind of background
1: and you are trying to measure it, so how do you actually go about trying to measure th- what you're doing either how quickly they can think or how quickly the response can be? How do you do that
3: yeah,
2: so that's a um that's a very tricky thing. <laughs> And so we use uh, neural imaging, so that means that we look at brain activity while it's, while it's happening. Um, and so we do that with uh, two different modes. One is electroencephalography, which measures the electrical activity of the brain. Um, and then the other mode we use, uh, particularly for these studies that are talked about in the Post article, are MRI, so it's magnetic resonance imaging. And so with MRI, you can look at the blood flow happening in different parts of the brain and you can look at how different parts of the brain are connected to one another, how, how deeply they're connected, how uh, thoroughly they're connected. And so, but while MRI gives you a great picture of the brain, it doesn't give you a great picture in time, right? Uh, EEG, on the other hand, gives you a very precise measurement in time of what's happening in the brain, but the picture is, is kind of blurry, right? So they say that, EEG's got great temporal resolution, bad spatial resolution. And MRI is a contrast; it's got great spatial resolution, bad temporal resolution. So it's it's the tricky part is being able to put together those complementary ways of measuring the brain to see that, like in the case of the baseball players, that their fusiform gyruses are more active in recognizing a pitch, and then that connects to how well, how fast they decide to swing. And so um, there's a lot of tricky, you know, analysis algorithms that are involved to interpret that data. But that's basically how it works. It's we measure brain activity, we apply an algorithm that tells us what's going on, and then we, we use that to look at the differences between the players.
1: So if we, can, if we can start to identify what parts of the brain are firing for certain things and what's connecting to what and all those kind of things you're talking about, how this whole process works, is mm-hmm. the idea that maybe we can actually find techniques, d- drills, whatever that could improve that part of the brain or improve our response time
2: yeah yeah i mean uh it's uh that's that's kind of the aim of uh you know what we're where we're driving at um with the company work because you know we know that we can we can measure this stuff now and that it 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 gives very clear differences for people who play and people who don't play and people who play better than other people and so uh now the question is all right since we can measure this kind of stuff, what's, what's, the, what's the best kind of prescription in terms of a, a training regimen that you can give to somebody, right? And there's a lot of work out there on what's called vision training and things like that to get, like, you know, athletes, particularly baseball players, eyes to function better for them when they play. Um, but these are usually, I call them prescriptions without diagnoses, right? They're just kind of blanket prescriptions, you know, kind of wonder drug type things. Um, and uh, there's really no honing in on what the actual problem is with a given player, right? So our approach is that if you've got a way to measure exactly where the issues are, then that will allow you to make a more precise training regimen for that player. And those are the kind of things that we're starting to do as a major league team.
1: And what's fascinating, and you touched on it, and the one thing I hadn't ever thought of it until you mentioned it three or four minutes ago, seems to me that of all the things for life and death either for i mean you said soldiers which makes all the sense in the world because you know with all the stuff that they could be facing this seems like the perfect a firefighter a police officer any job that kind of has a lot of stress and has a lot of potential dangers this seems like it's a perfect thing to try and improve their ability to react quickly
2: absolutely absolutely and um you know we uh we've mostly started in sports but You know, the initial work that that I I had done with the Army uh, before on this kind of stuff, we were looking at um, how, uh, you know, what's going on in the brains of soldiers and marksmen when they decide to shoot back or not based on the sound of of gunfire. And, you know, you can think of zillions of applications for that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, police, police, law enforcement, uh, particularly here in the United States, where we've had a lot of that in the news. So, you know, the idea is, you know, you can use a controlled way of of training or first measuring, you know, how decisions are happening when they happen so quickly like that, and then figure out ways of training, uh, you know, policemen or soldiers better.
1: Just before I let you go, one one thing has popped up. Do those parts of the brain that we're talking about that are involved in these rapid decisions, do they deteriorate with age? Because we see athletes who are unable to do what they did when they're 20s, when they get into their 30s and 40s, is that physical, or is that their brain that's also slowing down?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think um, I mean we, we haven't done any kind of longitudinal studies like that, but um, I can say that uh, I've I've read an uh, I've read you know an article maybe in the last couple of years um, about one of the one of the Yankees players here in New York who is uh, it was quoted as saying that he actually is guessing it pitches a little more right um, because he can feel that his physical reflexes are, are slowing down so you know when i read that article i thought wow that's really interesting because you know we're we're measuring how the player is deciding on a pitch even before he physically moves, right? and so right with that example from the Yankees player what he's basically saying is that he's making his decisions on his pitches earlier because he knows that it's going to take him longer to connect to the motor areas to the motor control areas. So, I think what's going on is that you actually have two competing things happening is that the reason that player can continue to excel actually even in his later years is that he's he's able to pick out the more subtle cues earlier. Remember, fusiform gyrus is what does that kind of stuff and that compensates actually for the fact that his motor control areas are reacting slower. Right? So, you have two possible things going on as a player gets more experience. One is He's able to pick out the cues, the relevant cues, sooner, right, which pushes his decision time uh, back in time, right? And that can compensate for the fact that the physical reflex times, which do get slower with age, are actually getting slower.
1: It is really, really fascinating stuff, honestly. it's uh, and, and when you mention the applications, I mean, it is. It, it seems like there are just so many ways that this could branch into useful things in areas of of life that, you know, uh, that we have, as you say, that we have difficulties with, with police, with, with military, with those kind of things. Uh, Jason Sherwin, neuroscientist with DeCervo. Did I pronounce it right? DeCervo? Absolutely right. DeCervo. If you want to go look that up online, you can, uh, you can find that, and there's tons of interesting stuff there. Jason, thanks for doing this tonight.
2: Great. Thank you. Uh,
1: you know, the idea of this, which, again, we've talked about this before, But it never ceases to amaze me because the time that you have if you are a Major League Baseball player to swing at a fastball, to identify it and swing at it, it takes less than half a second and according to the studies they've done, a third of that is taken up with the ball traveling to home plate before you can even see the ball. You haven't picked it up yet. So you're now talking about maybe a a quarter of a second to recognize it. As Jason said, see if it's in the tunnel and have your brain fire and all this stuff go on, this incredibly complicated stuff going on in your brain, which then tells your body to move and then to have you launch into your swing and somehow align the bat with the ball. So they meet in a space, a place in space at the exact same time. You wonder why baseball is such a hard sport, but even if you're not a baseball fan, forget baseball for a second, because what he's talking about, imagine if this is, if they can start to answer some of these questions and come up with ways that would improve and sharpen those reaction things, because all these, you know, we hear about these police shootings and we're not going to talk about the, the rightness or wrongness, whether they were good shootings or bad shootings or anything else. That's not the topic for today, but imagine if you were able. To have a far more crystal view and better decision making in those moments, or for a soldier on the on the battlefield, these things are these are fascinating ideas that you can that maybe we can start to tweak the brain in ways we had no idea. Again, his website is his company is DeServo, lowercase D D E, capital C E R V O. And go online, it's Jason Sherwin If you're interested in reading more about this And again, uh, in The Spectator today There is the story that is from The Washington Post about this Or go online, read whatever But really interesting stuff You're listening to The Scott Radley Show Weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML I have no idea who the best doctor is in Hamilton I just don't I don't know that anyone is I don't know that you can actually grade that On that kind of scale I don't know who the best teacher is I don't know who the best plumber is. I don't know who the best, a lot of things are, but I can tell you who the best golfer is in the city. And I know that because there is only one person now or ever from the city of Hamilton who has owned a PGA tour card. And that is my next guest, Mackenzie Hughes, who his card is still so new that it, probably I mean, have you even like taken it out of its wrap or yet or anything? Mackenzie, like what, what that card has got to be, you know, pristine,
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's still in pretty good shape, not going to lie. It's it's
1: very fresh. I got to tell you, uh, welcome on the show. By the way, congratulations on doing this. Outstanding achievement by you. The biggest shock to me is that the PGA Tour card is actually a card. I just thought that was sort of a figure of speech. I didn't realize you actually got a card.
0: Yes, we do get a physical, real card. And that's not the the one I got uh, during the ceremony was not the real one that I will have during the year, but for the ceremony purposes, they gave us that card, and then we will get a real one once we do our member orientation and make it official.
1: So what does the card do? Because surely when you walk in and you say, hey, I'm playing in the tour, look at my name on the list, you can get into the course or the clubhouse. What, What does the card actually get you?
0: Well, to be honest, you know, when you go to a tournament, you need to show that credential when you're going in places. I mean, if you're Tiger Woods, you probably don't need to show your credential. <laughs> yeah, probably. But, you know, for most guys, you know, if you have a security guard that doesn't know many players, doesn't know golf, it's just a way of identifying the players versus you know non-players or caddies. Like, there just needs to be a way of you know differentiating these these types of people. So, we do have a different credential that allows us to get in, you know, obviously everywhere we need to go, and so it's a, it's a basically a one-stop shop badge, and yeah, I mean, it's just a way for them to basically know who we are, and, and you know, I'm sure Tiger Woods doesn't carry us around, but, you know, I'll be uh, carrying mine around for
1: sure. <laughs> Even though the one you got at the ceremony after you earned it, um, even though that's not the... Real card. I, I have to think that a few times in the next day or two after you got it, you pulled it out and took a look at it and went, "Holy cow! I've actually got this thing."
0: Yeah, for sure. It was pretty surreal, just you know, being part of that ceremony and I think getting that card and and going through that whole that whole deal, it just kind of really you know sealed it off for me and made it official. And when I won two weeks ago, it was you know I, I knew I had clinched my tour card but this whole deal on on last last sunday in portland that really made it official for me and and that's kind of when i was like wow this is actually happening and and just yeah just having that card in my hand i pulled out a couple times and again it was just disbelief and excitement and just so many things you know you, you think about all you know all the hours of practice you put in to you know be holding that card in your hand it's really felt
1: good well let's talk about that for a second because this is I think most people know Mackenzie how much of a grind it is to make it in golf it's not a team sport there's no guarantees you don't have a contract and no matter how well you play you get to keep going
0: uh, I'm gonna have to disagree through I don't think many people do understand the grind I think I think quite the opposite actually I think many people think that golf is the dream the dream life and you know, I actually think it's the opposite. I think people don't understand how grueling it can be to be on the road for 35 weeks out of the year. You know, and a lot of times, you know, you out of a suitcase. And granted, when you get to the PGA Tour, things do improve. But, you know, to get there and, and play on the web.com, I, I think there's, you know, a lot of things people don't know. But, anyways, I'm sorry. I, no,
1: no, no. I, I listen, I, I my suggestion more was the idea that it's really hard to get there because it's it's a very small group that's at the top of the uh of the, of the the list that it's a very hard thing to get to that point but you're I think you're probably right I in fact I'm sure you're right people don't think about they see you out playing golf on beautiful courses and we all think oh that would be fantastic and you don't think of the stuff behind the scenes tell me some of the things because I mean over the years you have you it has been a grind you've been in some places that were interesting don't tell, tell me some of the when you look back now and you say hey i got my card what are some of the places you look back and you say yeah you know what that made that moment or that moment worth it
0: you know it's hard to pinpoint exact places but i can i can just think back and you know remember you know being in tough spots and you know we you kind of touched on the fact that you know people are always watching golf on TV and they think, oh wow, this is a great life. They're playing golf on you know in these great places, and well, they're showing the you know the best player in the world week in week out, or the guys playing really well that week, but they're not showing the guys struggling, not playing well, not making any money that week. You know, so they aren't showing that side of it. So you never get to see the struggles and the downtimes of those guys. Now, as far as you know, places I've been the last couple of years that kind of remind me of you know how good I've got it now. Um, you know, there's definitely a few places. I mean, I remember a couple of years ago. Actually, this might have been. This was last year. Last year, I was going to qualify for the U.S. Open, and I remember the the first stage of the qualifier was I don't know two hours from my house and. I remember driving there after a tournament. So I had missed the cut at a previous tournament, uh, a Web.com event last year. And then I had to drive like three and a half, four hours, you know, straight from there after just, you know, missing the cut, making no money. I'm driving two and a half, three hours to the next place. And I'm, I remember checking into this hotel, and I was in Pinehurst, North Carolina. And Pinehurst is really a nice town. But I remember being in this part, the part of Pinehurst that was not nice, and <laughs> thinking to myself, "Okay, I'm going to lock my doors and I'm going to bring everything out of my car because my car might not be here in the morning." And I'm in this hotel and it's it's grimy and it's, it just feels dirty. And I'm thinking to myself, like I had brought a bunch of food and I was like, I don't even feel like it's sanitary to eat my food in this hotel room. Because it's so dirty. <laughs> And, you know, so you're you're at these points, and you're thinking to yourself, like, at the time, you don't think how, you know, how bad it really is, but now, like, looking back on it, it's like, that was just awful. And, you know, to, to fast forward, you know, to the moment I'm at right now and have my PGA Tour card, it's, it's really unbelievable. unbelievable.
1: I, I, I recall talking to you, I think it was last year after you had just failed to qualify for something. It was a very it was a moment that was really tough US for Open. you. US Open. US Open. And I caught you in a in an airport because your flight had just been canceled. So you've got this demoralizing moment on the course. Then you get to the airport and you're stuck there for hours and hours and hours and hours. And I remember getting off the phone thinking, first of all, I felt like crap for bugging you then. But at the same time it was, you know, again, this is not the golf world that people see when they turn on their TV and they see Amen Corner and they go, oh, look, I mean, now I, I could do that for sure.
0: Well, you know, and that that, that right there was a reminder. I mean, I think I, I remember that day, you know, vividly because, for one, it's uh, you know it was, a, it was a tough day previously, and then the next day was not very fun either. But I remember, you know, getting to the airport late and a whole bunch of things happened. Like I was stuck in traffic, and then I had to return a car, and, I was late returning the car, so I, you know, dropped it off with no gas in it. And then I had to get, I got charged like so much money to, to fill the gas up by, you know, the car company. And then I get to the to the gate and I'm trying to check in. And I was like two and a half, three minutes late to check in. Like they were like, oh, you just missed it by a couple minutes. And I was like, okay, awesome, great. <laughs> and then you know, they they fill, they fill me in with more good news that you know the next flight out is not for another like six, seven hours. So it's like, okay, great. I've just you know, had the worst day ever yesterday and now I get to in the airport, you know, for six, seven hours and miss my flight. And I mean, that stuff you don't hear about all the time. And, you know, back to that whole golf part being, you know, living the dream and how it was how it's great and glamorous. I mean, you watch those guys like Roy McIlroy, Jordan Speed, you know, Jason Day, those guys are, you know, established and they've, you know, made it to a point where it's you know they live they live a, a very nice life, and a lot of guys out there do. But even the guys just cracking on the PGA tour, it's not you know it's not private jets, it's not you know two hundred dollar night hotels every every week. It's just not that way you know right away. And you know, so there's a, a process that you know to get to that point, and you have to establish yourself and. But you're right. I mean, there's just I don't know. It, it, there's a lot of stuff that people don't see, and you know, I'd I'd love to share more, but I don't have enough time in the day to tell you, you know, all the things that you know people don't know about. But yeah, so.
1: well, and, and you know what, I believe that, and, and I mean, I, I've I've heard other stories, and and I remember it was in Panama or somewhere where you went, and there was no caddy for you, and and you were sharing a room with somebody else and i mean on and on and on the stories are endless. So when you then 2 weeks ago when you putt out and you win that tournament and then you know that this PGA tour card is going to be yours. Again, what's the what's the what's the first thing that pops into your head then? Is it is it what i've come from? Is it celebration? What's what is swirling around in Mackenzie Hughes' head when you realize you've just won this and you're going to the big time?
0: To be honest, it was all a blur when that putt went in. You know, I didn't even know what to think or how to react. I didn't know how to grasp. Like I knew the, mag- the magnitude of what I had just done was was bigger than what I could kind of grasp in that moment. I it's hard to it's hard to describe that feeling. Like I knew I I was aware of what I was doing all day, but then like once I I had like spent so much energy. Trying to win that tournament, that by the end of the day, and when I finished that last little putt, it was like the mind just shut off, and I just totally like went out into space. Hmm. And I was just like, "Oh my gosh, like what happened?" and head spinning. You know, people are cheering. You know, why are they cheering? Oh yeah, I have won. <laughs> it, was, it was a weird moment. Like it was just like it was like I was so spent mentally that. You know, I just, I, I didn't know what to think, honestly. And then in the moments after that, as I'm, you know, walking, you know, off the green and I'm walking to find my scorecard, it's tr- it's almost hitting me, but it's like, I'm, I'm still trying to say, like, to myself, what have I just done? Like, I mean, I'm going to the PGA Tour, like, that's not, that's not real. And I just, it took me, it took me a good, like, hour to two hours to, like, just come down off that high and just. Be like wow, this has actually happened. It's real. I'm not dreaming. I mean, it was it was a really a really cool feeling. Though I mean, I'd love to have that feeling more for sure.
1: Kids who grow up playing baseball imagine hitting the grand slam home run that's going to win the World Series. Or if you're if you're a kid who grew up playing hockey, you imagine that you score the Stanley Cup winning goal. Is that what you had there? Was that a moment that you had? Imagined a million times before when you were a kid on a golf course when you were nine and ten and eleven years old playing on a local course. Would you be under your breath whispering, "Here's Mackenzie Hughes with the putt for the whatever"? Was that what you did as a kid?
0: All the time, <clears throat> you know, it, because as a kid, you know, you, you're not really, you know, like now I do, you know, putting drills and and, and I do more practicing, you know. That's, I guess, more. Um, regimented and there's, I mean, I still do games for myself and I still have fun and, and make those putts. But as a kid, I did it all the time. You know, usually it was for the Canadian Open. Um, a lot of times it was for the Masters. But you know what? In my in my dreams and when I visualized it and when I practiced it, the putts were never never that short.
1: So,
0: <laughs> I, mean, I was I was uh, I was thrilled to see it was so short when I had it up there and. Um, so I've done that many times in my life where I've visualized myself, you know, making the putt to win a tournament. It just it never seems to work out where I get the two-footer. And um, I was really fortunate that the, when it happened for, the, happened for the real time, and the first time it was, you know, a really short putt.
1: Well, this is uh, this is the first one because, you know, the next stop is the, um, the next win. Man, oh, man, the next one is, uh, you know, hopefully soon. But it's it, yeah. it takes it up a whole other level. Uh, we got to go, Mackenzie. But when when do you start? When's your first event on the PGA Tour? The first event
0: on the PGA Tour. There's four more finals tournaments, the Web.com Finals, and I'm gonna basically be playing for my priority on the PGA Tour next year. And then basically in you know, a five weeks' time, I think the second week in October is when the PGA Tour season starts for 2017. So it's I mean it's literally you know five five, six weeks away, and it's going to be here.
1: Do you know where so, it is? Where Where's your first tour so we can be watching for it?
0: We are first tournament is in uh, Napa, California.
1: Well, we will definitely. You also are getting married. Which is which is going to be more exciting, getting the tour card and getting your first tour or getting married? I don't know if your fiancé is listening.
0: <laughs> you know, because I am home and she is listening, my wedding will be the best day of my
1: life. <laughs> Yeah, you're a very, very smart honesty, man, McKenzie.
0: In all honesty, it, it will be a great day, and I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm probably gonna give them a, you know, a close tie, maybe one inches in front of the other. I don't know which one does, well I'll have to see uh, how the wedding goes first.
1: We are, uh, we're very happy for you. We're very happy for you, very excited for you, very proud of you for what you've done. Listen, it's uh, it's a huge, huge achievement, and we can't wait to see you playing now in under the bright lights with the in the big time in the PGA Tour. Mackenzie, well done, congratulations.
0: Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having
1: me. That is uh, Mackenzie Hughes, now a PGA Tour player. That is that is again when you look at how many people in the world are golfing, and then look at how many actually get their PGA Tour cards. It's a staggering thing to be able to get there. I don't know if everybody, if you don't golf, you may not, I don't know, you may not quite recognize it, but if you are a golfer, you understand what a big deal this is. So five weeks from now, Napa, California, keep your eye on the TV, keep your eye on the computer, whatever it is, look for McKenzie in his first, well not his first, he played a few Canadian Opens and a U.S. Open, but his first as a PGA Tour Card holding player. Watch for him. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. I was reading a story online the other day that suggested that 50 to 60, 50 to 60, over half of college students are dealing now with serious mental health issues. That, according to Dr. Gene Barrison, a psychiatrist who heads the Clay Center for Young Healthy Minds at Massachusetts General Hospital, 50 to sixty percent. Think about that for a second. Go down to McMaster. There are what twenty five thousand students at McMaster. That means that fifteen thousand, let's say, have something that they are dealing with as far as mental health. That's that is if if in fact that's the case. That is truly truly staggering. Well, Doctor Barrison uh, is joining us this evening and uh, to chat about this. Doctor, thanks for doing this tonight. Sure, happy to be here. Just before we get into this, because again, this number to me is an absolutely staggering number. Define, in your words, what constitutes a serious mental health issue.
3: There are a number of, of psychiatric disorders that we see very commonly in, uh, in college-age students. Anxiety disorders, mood disorders such as depression. Uh, um, there are self-injurious disorders. There are, there's use of substances, alcohol and, and drugs, relational problems, you know, breakups um, that are very stormy or difficult for, for students, learning disabilities, attentional problems. Uh, uh, so all of these things, uh, if you add them all up, it doesn't seem like so many because You know, everyone has you know, problems during college with anxiety, depression, stress, um, uh, but they're quite serious.
1: Yeah, and I was going to say your definition of serious would be then something that is affecting your life in more than just a peripheral way. It's something that actually has an impact on your life.
3: Exactly. It's something that's, in, that's, a, that's affecting your ability to function. Uh, we call a, a disorder or a serious issue one that affects your social, occupational, recreational, or academic functioning.
1: Now, do, do others share this view? Do others look at the numbers and say that they agree that you've heard, or do they say that, no, this is way high or way low?
3: Well, no, I mean, first of all, yes, there is agreement. It, it is staggering, but, but these numbers come from, they don't come out, out of the clear blue sky. I mean, the numbers come from, the major source that I've, I've gotten them from is the Association for University and College Counseling Center Directors in the United States have an annual survey of about 500 colleges of uh, all different sizes uh, from different parts of the country. So it's a very large number. It's a very accurate survey. And they, uh, what they do is they not only uh, look at who comes to their counseling centers, but what, what uh, numbers are reported that actually don't even arrive at their center.
1: So is this something new, then? I mean, maybe the numbers are new, but is do we believe that this vast amount of kids, and I'll say kids, but I mean, they're young adults that are that are at university, do we believe this is a new phenomenon, or is it just that we're reporting it now?
3: No, it, and, and it actually has been reported. Part of the problem, Scott, is that this has been a problem for many, many years, um, but it's really been undercover. And in part, it's undercover because there's such stigma associated with it that many of the students, uh, you know, either don't seek help or don't want to talk about it. Colleges in the United States are very concerned about it, but they don't want to, you know, in general, to publicize this because, you know, it scares off parents, it scares off students, and they just don't know how to deal with it. Um, another striking figure that comes from the very same group of directors of counseling centers it's also quite staggering, are the number of, in the United States, the number of certified mental health counselors per thousands of students. So in large universities of 20 to 30,000, there's about one certified counselor for every 3,000 or 3,500 students. In our smaller colleges, it's about 1 to 680 students. So not only is it a big problem, but the resources are extraordinarily limited for students to get help.
1: Yeah. I mean, and, and, if, and again, if we're looking at these numbers and you say 50% and it's one for 3,500, that's one for, that's one counselor for 1,600 people who need their services. Exactly.
3: Yeah. Now, you know, I mean, uh, the other thing to realize that's that, that often not realized is the prevalence of mental illness, of psychiatric disorders in the general population. In other words, your chances of having a psychiatric disorder during your lifetime is about twenty four percent. One in four people will have an episode of a psychiatric problem that affects their functioning. That too is staggering. But interestingly and most importantly, most of these problems happen during, you know, fourteen year ages fourteen to twenty six. And college is a prime time for this because the, these, these kids are leaving home, they're on their own, they're trying to navigate waters, uh, you know, uh, with their friends, and, you know, the amount of supervision that college students have is pretty, is pretty limited.
1: Uh, oh, absolutely it is it's the, I mean for most kids, it would be your first chance to have real independence and exactly. that and that means for for good or for bad is your i mean you're, you get to be independent, but it also means you start solving your own problems
3: you got it and and one thing the one other thing that most people don 't realize is that the brain doesn 't fully develop until age twenty six so while in the United States we count eighteen as kind of the age of you know being adult and independent uh you 've got a number of years before the brain is fully. Um, matured, and what's in, in, incredibly important about that is that while the while the thinking part of the brain, the cortex, the top of the brain, is well formed, the neural connections between emotions, impulses, the lower parts of the brain, those are the ones that are actually taking place between 14 and 26. So college age students from say 18 to 21 are just in, in the middle of the process of forming these really important connections between their emotional lives, their impulses, their drives, and, you know, and, and for, the, for those impulses to get up to the parts of the brain that make you stop and wait and think about consequences, about behavior, about what you're doing, or in the process of being formed and developed. And sadly, we haven't really taken... This into serious account and really paid attention to it. Yeah,
1: and into the middle of all this development, you drop this massive stressor of university.
3: Oh, yeah. The number one, the number one reason students have problems um, about of those fifty percent of students, about half of them, the major problem is anxiety, taking tests, the stress of being alone, being homesick, not knowing what to do in a crisis, a friend has a problem, there's a breakup in a relationship. I mean, just think of all the things that happen. To to students or to even adults in life. And here you have some kids, 18 to 21, who are facing these things pretty much, you know, flying solo. And many colleges and universities haven't really paid attention to kind of supervisory systems, either peer supervision or adult supervision, to kind of be acceptable to the students.
1: Dr. Barrison, as I was getting ready to talk to you tonight, there was a website that I was looking at that was that that didn't share your view. And one of the interesting things it said was a lot of the stuff you're talking about with breakups and anxiety about tests and exams and these things, this is they just said this is just life, this is just youth, this is the bumps and bruises you every single person has ever got from growing up. We've all been through stuff like that. What would you say to that?
3: I would say that's probably true. But I'd say, you know, it's one thing to handle those breakups. When you're, or when you're mature and you have had a number of those experiences, it's another thing to experience it when you're alone or you're isolated or you actually have a, a, a psychiatric disorder such as depression or a panic disorder or, um, or learning problems and you can't really process it, um, it, it becomes a bigger issue. And the final, and, and this is the biggest most important thing that I would say to, to those folks on that website, you know, um, the, the the young adult brain, not being mature, is driven by impulse. And if you have a breakup and it feels like the end of the world, it may become one reason why you're going to drive into a tree.
1: Mm, okay. All right. So yeah, it's it's <laughs> it's not the same as a, as an adult who's who's dealing with this. But again, yeah. I want to go back for just a second because I I do find it personally I do find it hard to imagine that. I mean, I was in university in the late 1980s. Right. Uh, I find it hard to imagine that back then these same numbers existed. It seems, and again, I don't know why, but it seems as if this, this is much more of a modern thing. Was it just that nobody was saying anything? Were we really, or not? maybe not me, I mean, I don't know, maybe it was me, but were we really all dealing with this same thing, or is it a bigger problem now? I,
3: I think it is a bigger problem. I, we don't have enough longitudinal data to really tell us um but it's but it but, it, but it, it may be it may be a bigger problem i think the stresses in this in the modern era um uh are much greater on college students i mean the since the 1980s the economic pressures the pressures to be autonomous the pressures of getting a job um uh the whole digital age and the the rapid fire and the rapid movement of everything has really you know increased the stress level uh, on our kids.
1: Well, let me throw one other thing out there that I was wondering about today, and that is in the past, and not that distant past, you would have kids that would graduate from high school if they graduated from high school, and they would go and apprentice somewhere, or they would just get a job and go work with their parents' company or business or do whatever they were going to do, or whatever. Not everybody... I don't think it was seen as not everybody was cut out for college now it seems or university. We have this idea that everybody not only has a right but probably should go to university. We want to make university acceptable and accessible to everybody and I I mean I don't want to sound elitist or snobby or anything but I'm not sure university is for everybody.
3: I totally agree with that, I mean many many people who are pressured to go to college you know, um, would do just fine in learning, uh, you know, a, a necessary trade. I mean, there are many trades and many trade schools that are really quite, quite valuable uh, in, in terms of, of learning skills that, that uh, individuals can have for the rest of their lives. But you're right. There is, a, a, there is increasing pressure to go to college. And what's also interesting is that one of the most vulnerable groups of kids who have problems are first-generation college students. In other words, if you're hmm. the first kid to go to college in your family because you've been pressured to get there, um, you are at higher risk for these kind of problems than having multiple generations of, of kids in the family who are going to college.
1: All right, so I have a son who, this is true, I have a son who's going leaving for university in four or five days, I don't know, whatever it is, I've lost track now. Mm-hmm. Um, is there... Blame as is my generation of parents—the folks who are like me—who now are putting our kids in university—are we partially to blame for this because we have coddled our kids and we've given them constant affirmation and we've bubble wrapped them and told them they're perfect and wonderful and everything in the world revolves around them? Are we to blame for setting them up for this?
3: No, I don't think I don't. I wouldn't cast blame, but I think that I think that what we need to to do is to be mindful. First of all, many many kids—I don't know about your your kid, but many kids don't talk to their parents about these things. They don't want to talk to them about them. And they they, they take life for granted when they're home, and they expect that when they leave they're going to have newfound independence, and it's very exciting. So I I wouldn't blame anybody. Nobody's at fault here. But there are things we can do. For example, as parents, you know, we can be prepared for this. We can appreciate the fact that there are going to be stresses. We can talk with our kids. Or well, we can encourage them to to, to 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 have frequent check-ins with us. We can uh, help them understand how to navigate the college system, how to find mentors, how to uh, go to university health service if they are problems. We can address these issues, and you know, it, it's it's kind of like what our job really is when we're launching these kids is to stay in touch with them and help be guideposts and help and help help them navigate. Uh, so that there's this balance between them being autonomous and them checking in with us.
1: And how do we tell then? Because there, with all these kids again, we're using the number of fifty to sixty percent. There are still loads of kids who are going to university and getting good grades and graduating and succeeding. And if we're talking fifty to sixty percent, a fair number of those success stories. Right are also dealing with some of these problems. So how do we spot it?
3: Well, may, may, well, first of all, one of the most important things is to have open conversations with our kids and say, look, you know, um, and, and it's not about lecturing. Asking them about their lives, asking them about their stress, asking about what their problems are, having frequent, open conversations, relating the kind of issues or problems that we had when we were in college is very helpful. Ask them about their friends. Talk. They can talk. Maybe talk about their friends who might be having trouble. The most important thing is for them to, is for us to say, look, everybody gets stressed out. Everybody has some troubles with relationships from time to time. Uh, many people get down or depressed. There's a lot of temptations out there. For example, pre- peer pressures to do drugs or alcohol, or to get in, involved sexually. Those kinds of things might be a problem for you or your friends, and we should be able to talk about it
1: just before yes. i let you go does it help for kids or for again young adults to know that there are other people who are also dealing with this
3: you bet because you know when it's you that's feeling depressed or stressed or anxious or, or having trouble grasping the material or, or or managing your time or getting a good night's sleep at night or feeling the peer pressure you feel you're all alone to know that there are other kids having similar issues and in, and can there, there are campus organizations all over that that have peer counseling you, when you feel that you're not alone and others are sharing the same kind of problems, it's very reassuring and it's validating
1: it is uh, it is a fascinating although I must admit daunting thing to be considering that again we have a university in town here with 25 26,000 people that 15,000 of them might be going through some of this stuff that is a uh, it's a staggering staggering number Dr. gene Barrison psychiatrist from the Clay Center for the Young Healthy Minds at Massachusetts General Hospital thanks for doing this tonight really appreciate okay. your time
3: I'm delighted thank you
1: you know I, I hope i would truly hope that his numbers would be way off I didn't say I believe that they are way off. I have I have no reason to take issue with them. He's the expert, not me. But I would hope that his numbers would be way off. Because again, that kind of, just think of the number of people just in our city. You got McMaster, you got Mohawk, you got Redeemer. All those people. And 60%, 50% are struggling with Anxiety, depression, we didn't even get into the fact that there is large numbers, apparently, according to him, large numbers of suicides on campus that these are or, or at least universities which is not necessarily on campus but of university students this is a this is a frightening situation, and honestly, like, I don't know what you listening if you went to university when I went to university and it's not that long ago, I mean we're talking less than three decades ago, there was pressure. Of course there was pressure. But I don't think, at least I didn't feel it at the time, that the pressure back then to finish at the top of your class, the pressure to maybe be able to find a job, I didn't feel like that pressure was anything close to what I think the kids and the young people now are feeling as they're coming out of university. Seems to me that the the expectations, the pressure, the whatever else is just so ratcheted up that it does make you wonder. Something has to give, right? If a kid is constantly, if a student is constantly worried that one bad exam, one bad mark, one bad grade is going to have a deleterious impact on their broader life, not just on their report card for this semester, but on their life, that's man, that is, that is a lot to carry. And, and, and with transient work and all these other things that are going on with jobs that you can't find and people coming out of university and not being able to find work within your, your, what you studied, it's tough. I mean, it's tough. So, I mean, if you believe him, then it's your. I mean, it's you. If you believe him, and you are going to university, or you've got a kid going to university, like I do, or you've got a grand grandchild going to university, it 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 does make you think that you know. Check in. Really, really kind of frightening numbers. The Scott Radley Show, weekdays from seven to nine on AM nine hundred
3: AM nine hundred CHML.